Nissan has been committed to the EV game since 1947. Their EVs have traveled 8 billion miles. 8 billion miles driven by LEAF owners globally since 2010. From the North Pole to the Formula E track to your co-worker's garage. Put the electric at EV with the Nissan Aria and the Nissan LEAF. Visit NissanUSA.com to learn more. Nissan. EVs that electrify. Welcome to another episode of Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Michaelides, and each week we strive to bring you a cornucopia of all things music. We have episodes featuring archive interviews and a four-part series exclusively devoted to you two. And of course, Moments That Rock, where we talk to industry insiders and artists and ask them to share the moments that rock their world. But we leave the introductions to them. Hi, my name is John Webster. I've spent my entire life uh, in the music business, particularly with the company Virgin, both at Virgin Retail and Virgin Records. Uh, And I've had a jolly good time doing it. So I left Portsmouth where I lived in 1972, went to university, and the first thing I did was went to find the Virgin store, the Virgin Records store in Birmingham. It was the first place that had been that I'd never seen a Virgin store before. And it was a, a really exciting place. And then I spent three years at university organizing gigs, as many people did, and buying records and getting review copies, uh, blagging records all the time, and blagging tickets, and really had a really great time. And then I left university and I had no idea what I wanted to do. So just by chance, I took a job working in a Virgin retail store just while I decided what I was going to do with my life. And I never looked back. I went to Hull, a place in England that has not the greatest reputation. And in those uh, first couple of months in Hull, uh, an album came out in America that didn't come out in the UK for at least two months after it came out in America. And that album was born to run. And so began my lifelong love of Bruce Springsteen and all his work. Um, I've now seen him live 70 times, which is quite difficult when I've never been to America. Well, I've been to America once to see him, but only in the past couple of years. So um, that's been an integral part of my life. Even when I ended up being managing director of Virgin Records, the biggest poster I had on my wall was a Bruce Springsteen, which of course was on a a different label, and people found that very strange. I was lucky enough in 1988, when we were working with Peter Gabriel, that he did the Amnesty Tour and went to Wembley Stadium and saw Peter Gabriel and went backstage afterwards, and Peter Gabriel just said to me, John, I want you to come and meet someone, and he took me down a corridor into this little room and in walked Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> and these were the day before selfies and before pictures. And I have absolutely no recollection of what happened in that conversation at all. <laughs> I've no pictures of it or anything, but uh, it was one of the highlights of my life. So I joined, joined Virgin Retail, which was, of course, run by uh, Richard Branson, who went? It was more known, really, as a as an entrepreneur, I think, than a record man. He was not really a record man, but he was a really, really good businessman. And working with him 
was the ethic that uh, Virgin produced, which is very much a can-do, a can-do thing. Every time you said something to Richard Branson, he'd go, well, he would go, why can't you do that? And you'd come up with a reason, and he'd just keep going, why, 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 until, like a two-year-old child says why, until you get to the point where you go, well, actually, oh, yeah, actually we can do things like that. So he was a great, a great driver of the company. Uh, and he was very much wanted to, I guess, change the world in many ways and to be, be a leader and someone who, who made things happen. So it was very exciting working with, with him and coming up with a lot of the things that Virgin did that had not been, been part of um, British culture up until that point. And then because we'd heard about the American record stores, we went to, uh, me and my mate called Pete Dolan went on a trip to America and then another one with Johnny Fewings. And we went around and saw all the record stores in America, the big stores, basically to go and steal all the ideas from <laughs> what they were doing. Because in 1979, we opened the first Virgin Megastore in London, which was by then the biggest record store in Europe, I think. And that changed the face of, of retail in the UK and made it much more like the American ones. Um, and that was a very exciting time. So after that, I worked in Virgin Retail and I got up to be the head of uh, buying and things like that. And then one day, Simon Draper, who was the man who was the real ears of Virgin Retail, of Virgin Records, and had started the record label, um, he called me up and said, I want you to come and work for us and work at the label. So that was the second phase of my life. Um, and, and it was uh, a great opportunity. And I, I was very lucky to join the record label just at the period when the things that they'd signed in the late uh, 70s had really started to become successful. And so they'd signed a lot of uh, new wave acts and they'd signed the Sex Pistols, of course. Um, but a lot of the things they'd signed at the time really started to hit their stride. And they were people like the Human League, um, Heaven 17, Japan, Orchestra Maneuvers in the Dark, bands like that. And it was just at a time when all these, all these, all the stars aligned and uh, um, we became the top record singles label in the country in 1983 before that i'd spent the most exciting year in my life in manchester in between uh august 1976 and august 1977 um and i went there to go and run the tiny virgin record store which is where i met tony and i met a lot of other people and i saw an awful lot of music but more importantly the whole ethos of the punk era happened in front of me from behind the counter at that record store. So the group, local group called the Buzzcocks, um, I put their first record out and uh, they pressed up a thousand copies. They were the, one of the very first people to do that in the UK to do the DIY ethos. And so they, they pressed up a thousand copies. And one day the manager came in and he said to me, I haven't got any records left. I can't give you any more records. We've sold out. 
And I said, well, make some more then. And he said, I can't. We haven't got any. We, we raised the money to make a thousand records. We've made a thousand records and sold them all, but no one's paid us for those records yet. So we haven't got any cash. And I said, oh, well, how much do you need? And he said, um, we need 600 pounds to press another thousand copies. And at the same time as the punk thing happening, I was running coach trips to see big bands like Pink Floyd and Status Quo at a big place uh, called the, in Stafford called Bingley Hall. And I was making a lot of money out of it. And so when the manager of the Buzzcocks, Richard Boone, said he had no money, what's this? I said, I'm lending you 600 pounds on the condition that of their thousand copies, I get the first hundred copies to sell in this shop because we desperately need them. And he looked at me like I was completely mad. And of course, that money had been generated by the old wave of bands, by Pink Floyd and Status Quo, particularly. We'd run a lot of gig uh, coaches to see. So that was a, a timely moment where the old wave fin financed the new wave. And he was true to his word. He came in and gave me the copies back and gave me the copies as soon as they made them and then repaid me the money some months later. Um, anyway, but at the same time, in at that time, there was all the fantastic punk gigs going on, the Clash, the Pistols, the American bands coming in, like um, Talking Heads and Blondie. But then also the classic American bands were beginning to tour at that time, I saw Jackson Brown for the first time, saw Little Feet for the first time at Manchester Free Trade, all fantastic shows. So it was just a, a full-on, all-encompassing year of seeing fantastic music, watching the music business change, and just being part of it. So um, that was a, a, a great year of my life, probably the best year of my life. So fast forward, I joined the record label, and I became was sales manager, and then we had all these hits. And then a couple, about yeah, two years later in 1983, we had loads of hits and we didn't know which companies to, to license them to for compilations, pop compilations, which was something I don't think really happened so much in America, but were quite big in the UK. And I was sitting there with our head of legal and business affairs deciding um, who we would license these tracks to and on what royalty rates. And we both looked at each other and just went, why can't we do this ourselves? So we decided that it was worth pursuing. So we got a little meeting together with Simon Draper and Richard Branson. And we said, we think we can make a big go of this by putting out our own compilation record. And we went to EMI, who are our distributor, and we got their hits as well. And we did, that's how we decided to form, now that's what I call music, which was a poster on Simon Draper's wall. So we had to do this really quickly. We had to get it out for Christmas. And uh, we had very little time to do it. We had three weeks from the idea to actually put in the record out. And we called in our head of production and told him what we were going to do. And he just said, you can't do that. And we said, why not? And he said, well, it takes a week to make uh, gatefold record sleeves and we haven't got time to make them and then to press them and to ship them out to the stores and Richard Branson went why does it take a week and Rick just said well it just does and Richard just kept going why why 
And in the end, Rick said, look, why don't you call up the guy who makes them and he'll tell. So Richard rang up the guy who made the record sleeves and said, I want you to make these sleeves in 24 hours instead of a week. And the guy went, okay. And that was just one of those Richard Branson moments when what his determination to make things happen led to it happen, happening. And we put the album out and it sold a million copies in four weeks and began the most successful branded compilation series ever in the world. Uh, so that was a big life-changing moment for me. Didn't make a lot more money out of it at the time because um, I'd worked for Virgin and that was not how things were done there. But I did get a new car. That was a life-changing moment. I started on a local radio station in Manchester um, in 1979. So it's a great time to be working in radio in Manchester because all the kind of Joy Division and Factory Records and all those kind of things were happening. And uh, so I last year celebrated 40 years in radio and that took me to uh, the uh, national stations, Radio 1, I used to do a daytime show there, Radio 2, uh, now BBC Six Music, I'm on the uh, telly doing the Glastonbury Festival, not this year obviously, um, and uh, along the way I've kind of, you know, written a few books and uh, produced a lot of things and um, managed to have got away with it for all this time. The biggest thing really that could ever happen to me happened to me, which is that I became, I certainly wouldn't call myself a friend, but I became an acquaintance of David Bowie's. And, um, you know, the idea that David Bowie, I remember buying Ziggy Stardust when, uh, when it came out, you know, with the round, uh, the money I got from my paper round, um, which, um, you know, and, and listening to that and thinking, this is amazing. This has changed my world, this music. And the idea that that bloke who was making this record, the biggest star in the world for me, the, the idea that that record that I bought and listened to lying on my bed, um, that one day that guy would be um, in rooms with me saying, oh, hey, Mark, how are you doing? You know, and it's like David Bowie knows my name. It's unbelievable. And um, I do uh, I, I do cherish those times that I spent with him. You know, I did about three or four radio shows with him. I did a big, long interview with him in New York. Um, I uh, did a TV show with him. Um, I could email him. He sent me a quote for one of the, uh, the front of one of my books. I have about three or four David Bowie albums uh, here signed. Um, including Ziggy Stardust, you know, which is just amazing. And um, of course, my um, we we once I once introduced him on stage at a festival at Old Trafford Cricket Ground in Manchester, where Lancashire County Cricket Club play. Um, and um, it had been pouring down all day, and uh, I didn't have a dressing room, and so I've been put to uh, sort of while away the time in a little room at the end of the dressing room uh, corridor. Um, which had um, me in it, some chairs and tables, an electric fire and all the drinks that were going into all the other dressing rooms. Now, it was pouring with rain. What would you have done? And uh, the other bands on were like Suede and the Divine Comedy and the Electric Soft Parade and everything. And that afternoon, David Bowie had been on my um, radio show. And I said, I'm introducing you tonight. Um, so do you usually have an introduction tape? 
Um, he said, I do, yeah, why? I said, oh, because, you know, I just wanted to introduce you and then say, ladies and gentlemen, David Bowie, and you walk on and shake my hand and start. That would be the greatest moment of my life in my home city. And he said, okay, fine, because he was a nice guy. He said, I'll skip the tape tonight, no problem. So, of course, the trouble is it had been raining all day, and I was absolutely paralytic drunk by the time I got <laughs> on. And, some, and, someone, and, and someone said to me uh, just before I went on, it was being sponsored by our local paper, the Manchester Evening News. And uh, they said, can you mention that the Manchester Evening News is 10 pence on a Friday? I said, well, it's not exactly what I was going to say when introducing <laughs> me rock and roll hero, but yeah, I'll try and get it in. Um, anyway, so I went on stage, and I, at that point, you've introduced bands. You know, you know the prime rule is just get on and get off because people have been waiting all day. So maybe, maybe up to 30 or 40 seconds. Well, my intro to David Bowie at Old Trafford in the pouring rain is eight and a half minutes. <laughs> oh, my and, God. And at the end of that eight and a half minutes, you're no wiser than you were at the beginning of it, except for the fact that the Manchester Evening News is 10 pence on a Friday. And I think that David Bowie somehow would have gone to his grave knowing that the Manchester Evening News was 10 pence on a Friday. But mystified, and David Bowie's he's thinking, God, I've dropped my intro tape for this. Um, and uh, mystifyingly, he then asked me to introduce him again at the Howard Smith Odeon, the first time he played it since he retired Ziggy Stardust all those years earlier. So that day, um, I sat on my own in a room and had coffee and didn't touch any drink and got on and off and did the job properly. So um, I'm glad. But that day at the Hammersmith Odeon, um, I got there early and um, the tour manager was there and he said, oh, David wants to see you. So I said, oh, God, it's like going to the headmaster's office. Perhaps he's going to tell me off for what I did at Old Trafford and who can blame him. But I got into the dressing room and David Bowie was there. He had a pair of sort of beige, like the sand-coloured jeans on and a corduroy uh, bomber jacket. And he said, oh, he said, I don't know what to play tonight. I've been looking at this. And he got this list out, handwritten list, saying, uh, he said, I don't know whether to put Ziggy Stardust there or shall I do changes there and then hang on to yourself there before Heroes. And I'm like, David Bowie's sitting opposite me with a handwritten list. He's asking me what order the set should go in. I'm like, this is just blowing my mind. I mean, I, I tried to be as casual as I could, but that was one of those moments where you think and give thanks for what a remarkable life you've had. Because I was just a kid, like millions of other kids who liked David Bowie's records, and yet my life had taken him to, to that situation. And that's still, I still find that amazing and a very vivid memory. If you know, when he died, my world sort of shifted slightly on its axis. You know, I wasn't sort of thrown into you know, floods of tears or anything. But I remember hearing it on the radio and I turned the radio on and I actually wasn't quite sure who they were talking about. And so I thought, oh yeah, well, someone in rock and roll's died because someone in rock and roll dies every day. And at the end of it, so I was making a cup of tea and they said, so there you go, that's confirmation that David Bowie has died. I'm like, what? And I absolutely stopped in my tracks. And then I looked at my phone because obviously I've had radio shows and in the media and everybody knew I knew him and I was a massive fan. And of course, my phone was chock full of um, all these requests. Could I do this? Could I do the BBC breakfast? Could I do these things? But I said no to all of them because I had my own radio show that afternoon. I thought, well, I've got an outlet here. I can get this exactly right and say what I want to say and play what I want to play. And I thought, and they, you know, they say, well, can you go on the breakfast show, like the morning shows, like they are in America, like they are all over the world, you know, which are news programmes with kind of musical items and arts items in them. And I knew what it had been like. I would have been on 
um, and I'd have had three minutes between the weather and, you know, um, an item about someone breeding chinchillas or something. And so I thought, I can't possibly do it in that time. I can't, po- it means so much to me. I'd rather say nothing than say something, you know, just rushed and off the cuff. I want to think about this, you know, and do it my own way. So I didn't do anything about it at all outside my own programmes. And, you know, I think it's marvellous that he finished with such a great record. Um, uh, But, you know, I still find it sad. And I still find it sad thinking there's never going to be a new David Bowie album. It was on top of the Pops, the big British TV show. And when he put his arm around Mick Ronson's neck and they sort of sang together in one mic and looked into each other's eyes, people were like, oh, hello. It's hard to imagine now, but it was a really kind of revolutionary moment. And uh, you're right. I mean, he did play with all kinds of um, ideas about roles and androgyny and sexuality. And um, yes, I mean, it were, you know, he was just... He was always ahead of the times, you know. I mean, he just, and he, right to the very end, he made records that sounded like no one else's and that just seemed to exist in their own world. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Kate Bush. I wouldn't say she's the female Bowie. She might be the female Peter Gabriel, but I mean, she's not. She doesn't need to be the female anybody. She's Kate Bush to exist only in their own world. And she seems to have been one of those people who's managed to play the music business entirely by her own rules. She's made records when she's wanted to. She's disappeared for years at a time to bring up her son. And uh, I just think she's a one-off and a genius. And again, lovely. Um, And she had an album, um, well, she um, never did any interviews at all. And so mm. I was doing a show on Radio 2, which is a national station in the UK. And um, I played a record one night and I said, by Kate Bush. And I said, OK, you know, um, I don't know if you're listening, uh, but uh, give us a ring and let us know you're OK. Just sort of off the cuff. And so then every night she didn't ring me. I put a picture of Kate Bush on the wall of the studio with a picture of whoever had been the guest on that night, and I called it the Bushometer. And they went all around the studio and out the door and down the corridor in the end. Anyway, um, funnily enough, the head of EMI Records at that time was a guy called Tony Wadsworth, who uh, I was at school with in Bolton. And he phoned me up and he says, um, funnily enough, Kate Bush has got a new album and she's interested in doing a couple of things and she's heard about this. Um, and so uh, she's going to get, I've given her your number uh, because she likes to talk pe- to people to see if she thinks she can get along. So, of course, every time a cell phone rang, I was like, um, hi, trying to decide what voice to put on. And then, of course, the obvious thing happened when the message came through, I missed it and it went to answer phone. I said, oh, I've got a message. And it's like, hi, Mark, it's Kate Bush here. And you're like, I was looking at my phone. It was like, that was just looking at the phone and going, Kate Bush is in there. You know, and uh, and she said, well, you know, she said, I think we could do this and, you know, uh, have a listen to the record, see if you like it. No pressure. If you don't like it, we won't do it. Um, This was Ariel, the double album, which I absolutely adore, particularly the second album in it, The the Sky of Honey, the one where it tracks the day through birdsong. And I, I loved that. And so I went and she said, well, come to the house, she said, but um, she said, I've been a bit busy. So um, I, you know, I won't have time to cook anything. I've got <laughs> some cheese flans and things, you know. And she said, come around and drink battery acid. I would have gone. And so I went and she was just lovely. She was just like Bowie, really. And I've met people like 
Paul McCartney and that, and the biggest stars when you, Robbie Williams and people, when you get to the the biggest ones, they're always lovely because they've decided to do something. I mean, they've nothing to prove, any of those people. They don't need, like you said about Bowie, they don't need to do any of it. So when they decide to do something, they decide because they sort of feel like they could get on with you, they could have a chat with you, and they want it to be fun. You know, they want to enjoy it. Um, and so when I went to Kate Bush's and she said, right, oh, I'll just move the washing off the, the chairs in the kitchen so you can sit down. I'll put these flans in the oven, you know. And she was just so sort of down to earth, but incredibly smiley, incredibly friendly, you know, quite like her persona. But she was lovely. And so I met her a few times and also... She phoned, she, when I was ill, I was ill um, a couple of years ago. I had cancer of the, uh, the, the mouth and throat, and I'm fine now. And she phoned me up. You think it's Kate Bush, you know? But um, I would be expect these people not to function as normal human beings. They're, they are sensitive um, artists who have made a life out of observing things and turning them into art. So why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't Larry from U2? send you a Christmas card. Why wouldn't Kate Bush, having met me and liked me, phone me up? But we don't, we don't expect them to. I was, I was doing a programme, I was making a programme on Rickenbacker guitars. I was a big fan of the Rickenbacker guitar, you know, ever since, uh, I guess, Roger McGuinn and the Birds. I suppose I loved that sound. And so I, uh, um, through the um, record company or the plug-in company or whatever, I said, will George Harrison do it? And he said, no. I said, okay, fine. You didn't expect it. So I thought, you know what, I'll just try one more time. And I've got a number from for handmade films, you know, who made all the Monty Python films and things like that, which was one of uh, George Harrison. George Harrison was on the main partners and funders of all that. So I wrote to his secretary and he had an office at Handmade Films, so separate from all his music businesses interests i said listen you know i'm just making this program would would george have half an hour to talk about rick and back guitars and um she said uh, i'll ask him anyway so she asked him and i bypassed all the kind of bureaucracy of the music industry just going to someone who worked with him directly in a little office on one of those leafy london squares uh, she said um yeah he says he'll do it yeah, have you come down this day? And I said, fantastic, great. So I went and sat in this office and I, I waited to, it, like, it was like a very old sort of headmaster's office, you know, with a big oak desk and bookshelves and those those old desk lamps which had green glass on them. You know, it's very old-fashioned, musty old carpet. And, um, and then suddenly the door opened and one of the Beatles walks in, you know, George Harrison. And my first reaction was, uh, you really are a very good-looking man, aren't you? <laughs> you know, like you look amazing. And uh, and he was carrying a um, a brown paper bag. I thought, oh, what does George Harrison <laughs> carry in a brown paper bag? And uh, he said, oh, right, we'll get some tea and everything. And he got the brown paper bag, and he said, oh, he said, um, these are some flapjacks my wife's made. Would you like one? I'm like, yeah. Oh, thanks, that'd be nice, yeah. I think, you know, Joe, one of the most famous four men in the world at one point is offering me a home-baked flapjack, you know. <laughs> and um, uh, again, one of those moments. And, and, and um, my um, feeling about George Harrison was that um, how could you have been through one of the most remarkable lives that was lived in the 20th century and apparently be this normal, having come through that? How does that, how did that happen? I mean, George was the first one really to tire of 
all the adulation and the screaming and everything of the Beatles, wasn't it? I mean, he was the yeah. first one when they were in a van getting out of, I don't know whether it was Shea Stadium or whatever it was, and they were in this van, it was being hammered on the back and him saying to the others, I don't, I don't want to do this, really. You know, and I think he was the first one, really, and he did seem to be different from the others. And he didn't seem like a person who would relish uh, the limelight, you know, in the way that McCartney or, you know, Lennon in his own belligerent way, or even Ringo, yeah. you know, yeah. kind of, they seem to have a sort of different, but George, you know, I mean, he was always known as the quiet one, but he did seem to be the quiet one. And he did seem to me to be a bloke who just wanted to get on with his life and eat a flapjack his wife. But I mean, I'm just judging it off mating him that once. And so who, what do I know? But I did think that he seemed remarkably unscathed by everything he'd been through. You know, you think this is a sort of level-headed kind of guy. And adding to that, two very level-headed guys. That was Mark Radcliffe, famed BBC broadcaster for many a year. And before that, John Webster, who worked a large chunk of his career at Virgin Records, both on retail and on the label side of things. Hope you enjoyed the show. We will be back next week. But just remember...
some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the Roaring Twenties. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.